Welcome to the No Neutral Moments Podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and it's my pleasure to discuss, to explore, and maybe even to discover what it means for each one of us to live our lives fully engaged, to challenge each one of us to be fully aware, and completely expecting to engage to the fullest everything we've been designed, called, and gifted to be. So with all this in mind, let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get engaged. Well, hello there, and welcome to this episode of the No Neutral Moments podcast. My name is Patrick Payton. Uh, It's been an honor to be your host on this podcast journey of ours as we are well into year number two. And um, boy, what a year it was uh, leading up to this year. And uh, things have kind of been crazy since the last podcast. Uh, If you're listening outside of Texas, Uh, You know that we had uh, quite an event here, a winter event here that uh, had us all frozen in and all kinds of things are still happening uh, in I'm sure all of our lives. But uh, I want to dive right into this episode (laughs) and I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to edit that cough out, probably going to sniff and cough um, in this podcast. So I need to just make an apology for that right off the bat here. Uh, I am not recovering from COVID. I am recovering from sinus and um, uh, really just sinus problems and bronchitis and so forth. So if you'll excuse me for that, um, let's move right in. Just want to remind you, if you want to have a conversation, uh, want to talk about things you hear on this podcast, want to uh, communicate with me about sponsorship or whatever it might be of this podcast, you can reach me at Patrick at PeytonGroupLLC.com. Again, that's Patrick, my name, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, at Peyton Group, P-A-Y-T-O-N-G-R-O-U-P-L-L-C.com. Patrick at PeytonGroupLLC.com. Love to hear from you. So let me give you um, some background about what we're going to do, because this is going to be something I have never done before on this podcast, um, but there's a reason for it. In the last couple of weeks, uh, something has happened in uh, the life of my wife and I uh, that it, that other people have gone through as well. But it's one of those situations that sort of wakes you up to uh, life. It wakes you up to what matters. Uh, it hones that sense within you, and uh, and you become uh, just more aware. And and that thing that has happened in our lives is we have a very very dear friend uh, who is now two weeks into a completely unexpected, usually they are, but a completely unexpected battle with cancer. And it is um, a battle that, like I said, you don't expect. It's one that all of a sudden when you enter into it, it doesn't, um, it, it has not slowly entered your life. It's all of a sudden you go from, uh not expecting anything to now you're going to step into a fight, a fight for your life. And as I was thinking about it, uh, I was reminded that in my days as a a full-time vocational minister, uh, I would be involved in situations with people's lives that tended to recenter me, so to speak, on a number of occasions. Those, those issues with people's lives would be... Uh, fairly significant issues, whether they be life or death, whether they be great struggles. And they tended, those situations tended to 
maybe this would help help burn away the things that um, didn't matter, and the things that were pure metal uh, would come out as the things that still mattered. Other times we call these things wake-up calls in our lives when they uh, certain situations show up and all of a sudden we realize, I have forgotten what is most important. And that doesn't mean other things are terrible. It just focuses you. It centers you, so to speak. So I was thinking about it, and um, something entered my mind, I guess you could say, in, in my meditations and what entered my mind was what has become a, a more famous quote than it possibly was because of Brene Brown. And it's the quote uh, about the critic that uh, was given by Theodore Roosevelt. So I'm not going to read the quote yet because I want to tell you what I did. I, I, I looked up the quote and then I thought, well, you know what? Because here's what I found out about the quote. And and if you've never heard the quote, you're going to hear it in a little bit. But again, it's the quote about it's not the critic who counts. Um, so I looked up the quote, and I found out that the quote was actually in a speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave in April of 1910, after he had uh, left office in 1909. He, he'd spent a year hunting, it says, in Central Africa, and then he went on a tour of Northern Africa and Europe in 1910. And he was attending events and giving speeches uh, in places, it says, like Cairo, Berlin, Naples, and Oxford. He stopped in Paris on April the 23rd, and at 3 p.m. in the afternoon uh, at the Sorbonne, quick drink of coffee, at the Sorbonne before a crowd that included, according to his biographer, ministers in court dress, Army and Navy officers in full uniform, 900 students and an audience of 2,000 ticket holders, Roosevelt delivered a speech called Citizenship in a Republic. So this great quote that has become probably more famous in the last few years because of uh, Brene Brown came from a speech that Roosevelt gave in Paris in 1910. The title of the speech was called Citizenship in a Republic. And this speech ran in the Journal des Debats as a Sunday supplement. Then it got sent to the teachers of France by Latim. It was printed by the Librairie Haché on Japanese vellum and was turned into a pocketbook that sold 5,000 copies in five days. And it was translated across Europe. Uh, Roosevelt's biographer says he was very surprised at the success of this speech. The quote, uh, the man in the arena, so forth, and the critic, was quoted by Nixon in his resignation speech. It's been paraphrased in TED Talks, you might add ad nauseum. Uh, before the 1995 World Cup, Nelson Mandela gave a copy of the passage from the speech to Francois Pignat, captain of the South African rugby team that won the that and they won defeating the favored all blacks of New Zealand Washington Nationals player Mark DeRosa would read it to himself before big games and before the Nationals faced the Cardinals in game 4 of the National League Division Series in 2012 he read it to his teammates so why do i tell you all that well i pulled up the speech and it's a really long speech it it it's something we would probably 
categorize as the length of today's modern day um, State of the Union speech that's uh, uh, at the heights of boring TV in our lifetimes. But in getting to this quote that I was meditating on, when quite frankly, what what I was thinking about was the following quote that will probably offend some of you, but that's fine. And the quote was, there are times in life when we just have to fight like hell for what matters. And I've got a good friend uh, whose family is going to have to fight like hell uh, through something they never wanted to do. But I also realized that there are many of you listening to this podcast that are fighting like hell in life. And you are fighting to do things and you're being faced by opposition. You are being faced by criticism. You are being faced by setback. And sometimes that opposition, criticism, and faceback comes from uh, that, that it comes from inside. You're doubting yourself. Uh, it comes from people close to you who are doubting what you're doing. And, and you need a reminder uh, that you, you can keep fighting. And you need a reminder of the larger context of a speech that was given where one paragraph has been pulled. And, and so at the risk of being awkward or weird or whatever, I want to read you portions of the speech. I'm not going to read you the whole speech. It's very, very long. It's called Citizenship in a Republic, The Man in the Arena. You can pull it up on YouTube. Or YouTube. You can pull it up on uh, the internet as easy as I did. But bear with me because I'll stop and start uh, in this speech and I'll try to read it in a way that stays interesting to you uh, rather than just reading as fast as I possibly can. And I'm not starting at the beginning of this speech and I'm editing out sometimes very large portions. So please go back and check if you would like. Uh, One of the reasons I edited out large portions is because you have to read them in the cultural context in which the speech was given. And there has to be a uh, an ability to think about why he used certain words and certain phrases, and not uh, get offended in today's highly offendable culture. But he goes on and he begins. Now, if you'll allow me to uh, get into this, what will hopefully be an encouragement for you, as you'll also hear some themes. Remember, spoken about in 1910, so 111 years ago, that uh, would still be worthy of us considering today. He says, as the country grows, its people who have won successes in so many lines will turn back to try to recover the possessions of mind and spirit. He's talking about once you go conquer a frontier, so to speak, you then back up to make sure your ideals are correct. So he says, you turn back to try to recover the possessions of the mind and the spirit, which perforce their fathers threw aside in order better to wage the first rough battles for the continent that their children would inherit. The leaders of thought and of action will grope their way forward to a new life. They will realize, sometimes dimly, sometimes clear-sightedly, that the life of material gain, whether for a nation or an individual, is of value only as a foundation, only as there is added to it the uplift that comes from a devotion to loftier ideals. So if you were listening there carefully, which is hard to do, I know, when I'm reading to you over a podcast, but he said, material gain and success is great, but it must be uplifted by the devotion to loftier ideals. The new life thus sought can in part be developed afresh 
from what is roundabout in the new world, that it can be developed in full only by freely drawing upon the treasure houses of the old world. In other words, you have to stay connected to great old wisdom. The treasures stored in the ancient abodes of wisdom and learning. This is what I am here to speak about today, is what Roosevelt said on that day in April 23rd in Paris. Listen as he goes on and says, Today, I want to speak to you on the subject of individual citizenship, the subject of vital importance to you and to me and to my countrymen, because we are citizens of great democratic republics. Remember, he's, he's in France. A democratic republic, such as each of ours, he's speaking of America and France, an effort to realize in its full sense government by, of, and for the people. You'll recognize that phrase. These republics represent the most gigantic of all possible social experiments, the ones fraught with great possibilities alike for good and for evil. The success of republics like yours and like ours means the glory and our failure and the despair of mankind. And for you and for us, the question of the quality of the individual citizen is supreme. So again, he's talking about our citizenship, which is another way of saying our responsibility. And he's saying we who are republics uh, are dependent upon our leaders, but even more importantly, we are dependent upon the individual citizen. He says, but with you and with us, the case is different. With you here and with us, and when he refers to something that's different in the previous paragraph that I didn't read, he is speaking about how in countries that are not republics, everything depends upon the character of the one person in power, the king or the despot or whatever that might be. But he's again making the case that what matters is the individual, the fight of the individual, the character of the individual, and the quality of the individual. He says, with you here and with us in my home, in the long run, success or failure will be conditioned upon the way in which the average man and the average woman does his or her duty. By average, he is not using this in a pejorative term. He means you could could substitute average for the everyday man and the everyday woman. He goes on to say, uh, the average man and the average woman does his or her duty first in the ordinary everyday affairs of life and next in those great occasional crises which call for heroic virtues. The average citizen must be a good citizen if our republics are to succeed. The stream will not permanently rise higher than the main source that supplies that stream. And the main source of national power and national greatness is found in the average citizenship of the nation. So it behooves us, as I continue to read, to do our best to see that the standard of the average citizen is kept high, and the average cannot be kept high unless the standard of the leaders is even more high. And so he goes on and he says, let the man of learning, the man of lettered leisure, and he's talking about educated people, people who've had a chance maybe to go to to university and to to, uh, pursue higher education. He's He's also speaking to people of privilege here. He says, beware, beware of that cheap temptation to pose to yourself and to others as the cynic, as the man or woman who has outgrown your emotions or beliefs. Uh, another term for a cynic might be the stoic, uh, the man to whom good and evil seem to be as one. Because the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer, with a smirk. There are many people who feel a kind of twisted pride in their cynicism, 
There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even to attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect, than he who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes second to achievement. So what he's getting at here is he's beginning to turn the corner and the great quote that you have heard before or haven't heard, but I'm going to tell you about here in a minute. He's beginning to paint this picture about, you know, you can be really educated and you can think you're really important, but if it's not leading to a life of risk and of fighting like hell, so to speak, and all you do is look down on people who dream big and go big, then he goes on to say that you are really a despicable person. Um, He says, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize the work, which the critic will never even attempt to perform, an intellectual aloofness, which will not accept contact with the real realities of life. All these are marks, not as the possessor would want to think of superiority. These are just marks of weakness. They mark the men unfit to bear their part manfully, love that phrase, in the stern strife of living who seek in the affection or the affectation of contempt for the achievement of others to hide from others and from themselves their own weakness. The role is easy. There is none easier, save only the role of the man who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. And now, if I haven't already bored you to death, all of this leads to this quote. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcomings. But he who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the quote, but that quote, is embedded in a paragraph that I'd like to finish for you. Shame on the man of cultivated taste who permits refinement to develop into a fastidiousness that unfits him for doing the rough work of a workaday world. Boy, I hope you didn't miss that. I hope you caught that. Shame on the cultivated or civilized or, let's put it in today's terms, stuck up and arrogant individual whose refinement has led them to a place that they're not even fit for a rough day of rough work. Among the free peoples, I'll continue on, who govern themselves, there is but a small field of usefulness open for the men of the cloistered life who shrink from contact with their fellow man. Oh, there is even less room for those who deride or slight what is done by those who actually bear the brunt of the day. 
nor yet for others who always profess that they would like to take action, if only the conditions of life were not what they actually are. The man who does nothing cuts the same sordid figure in the pages of history, whether he's a cynic, a fop, or a voluptuary. There is little use for the being whose tepid soul knows nothing of the great and generous emotion of the high pride and the stern belief and the lofty enthusiasm of the man who quells the storm and rides the thunder. Well for these men if they succeed, well also, though not so well if they fail, given only that they have nobly ventured and have put forth all their heart and all their strength. Man, what a paragraph. What an encouragement 110 years ago. An encouragement we need today. Bear with me for a few more paragraphs where he goes on to say, Let those who have keep, let those who have not strive to attain a high standard of cultivation and scholarship. Yet let us remember that these stand second to certain other things. For there is the need of the sound body and the sound mind. But above mind and body stands character. Mm. And then he goes on to say, It is essential to good citizenship clearly to understand that there are certain qualities which we in a democracy are prone to admire in and of themselves, which ought by rights to be judged admirably or the reverse solely from the standpoint of the use made of them. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense just yet, but I I chose this paragraph because I told you there would be lessons to be learned 110 110 years later. So he's talking about these certain qualities in a democracy that we could admire. And he says, foremost among these, I would include two very distinct gifts, the gift of making money and the gift of oratory. And he says, money making, the money touch, he calls it. We would call that the the gold, the Midas touch. I have spoken of above. It's a quality which in a moderate degree is essential. It's useful when developed to a very great degree, but only if accompanied and controlled by other qualities. In other words, he mentioned character and how the moneymaker must display character. But listen to what he says about the orator. He says, so it is with the orator. It is highly desirable that a leader of opinion in a democracy should be able to state his views clearly and convincingly. In other words, you got to be able to communicate. But all that the oratory can do of value to the community is to enable the man to explain himself. If it enables the orator to persuade his hearers to put false value on things, it just makes him a power for mischief. He says, some excellent public servants have not the gift of oratory at all, and they must rely upon their deeds to speak for them. And unless the oratory does represent genuine conviction based on good common sense and able to be translated into efficient performance, then the better the oratory, the greater the damage to the public it deceives. And I hope you're hearing him say, if the person can speak well, but they do nothing and their deeds are empty, then it's terrible. Indeed, it's a sign. He goes on to say it is a sign of marked political weakness in any commonwealth. If the people tend to be carried away by mere oratory or speech, let me say that again. He goes on to say, it is a sign of marked political weakness in any people or a commonwealth if the people tend or lean towards or are carried away by mere speech making, if they tend to value words in and for themselves divorced from the deeds for which they are supposed to stand. 
The phrase maker. These are again Roosevelt's words. The phrase maker, the phrase monger, the ready talker, however great his power, whose speech does not make for courage, sobriety, and right understanding is simply a noxious element in the body politic, and it speaks ill for the public if this speaker has influence over them. To admire the gift of oratory without regard to the moral quality behind the gift is to wrong the republic. Man, I, you, just, um, you just sit back and you read these words and you think to yourself, my goodness, lessons to be learned as we fight for what matters. I wasn't going to use this next paragraph, but I think it's interesting to read it 110 years later. So bear with me as I read this. He says, of course, all that I say of the orator applies with even greater force to the orator's latter-day and more influential brother, the journalist. The power of the journalist is great, but he is entitled neither to respect nor admiration because of that power unless he uses it correctly. He can do, and he often does a great good, that is the journalist. He can do, and he often does infinite mischief, that is the journalist. All journalists and writers, for the very reason that they appreciate the vast possibilities of their profession, should bear testimony against those who deeply discredit it. Offenses against taste and morals, which are bad enough in a private citizen, are infinitely worse if made into instruments for debauching, what a word, the community through a newspaper. Let me read that again. The offenses against taste and morals are bad enough if a private citizen offends good taste and good morals. But it's infinitely worse if it's made into instruments for debauching the community because it's brought out in a newspaper. He uses some words we don't often use today, but mendacity, slander, sensationalism we use today, inanity, vapid triviality, vapid triviality are all potent factors for the debauchery of the public mind and conscience. Folks, this was 111 years ago. The excuse advanced for vicious writing, or you could say for us broadcasting, that the public demands it and that the demand must be supplied can no more be admitted than if it were advanced by the purveyors of food who sell poisonous adulterations of such food. Well, I'm really thankful you've, you have borne with me through this. I hope you'll, uh, you'll listen to just a couple of more things. And uh, then I'll wrap this thing up. The good citizen will demand liberty for himself. And as a matter of pride, he will see to it that others receive the liberty which he claims as his own. Probably the best test of true love of liberty in any country is the way in which minorities are treated in that country. 111 years ago, folks. Not only should there be complete liberty in matters of religion and opinion, but complete liberty for each man to lead his life as he desires provided only that in so doing he does not wrong his neighbor. Persecution's bad because it's persecution. And without reference to which side happens at that moment to be the persecutor and which the persecuted, it's just wrong. Class hatred is bad in just the same way. And without any regard to the individual who at any given time substitutes loyalty to a class for loyalty to the nation or substitutes hatred of men because they happen to come in a certain social category, for judgment awarded them according to their conduct. 
In other words, persecution and class hatred is wrong no matter who's doing it. Remember always that the same measure of condemnation should be extended to the arrogance which would look down upon or crush any man because he is poor and to the envy and hatred which would destroy a man because he is wealthy. This is the class warfare thing, and he's saying it's just as bad to want to crush the poor as it is for the poor to want to crush the wealthy. The overwhelming or overbearing brutality of the man of wealth or power and the envious and hateful malice directed against wealth or power are really at root merely different manifestations of the same quality, merely the two sides of the same shield. The man who, if born to wealth and power, exploits and ruins his less fortunate brethren is at heart the same as the greedy and violent demagogue who excites those who have not property to plunder those who have. The gravest wrong upon his country is inflicted by that man, whatever his station, who seeks to make his countrymen divide primarily on the line that separates class from class, occupation from occupation, and men of more wealth from men of less wealth, instead of remembering that the only safe standard is that which judges each man on his worth as a man, whether he be rich or poor, without regard to his profession or his station in life. Such is the only true democratic test the only test that can with propriety be applied in a republic. Can I, assuming there's at least three of you still listening, can I just read that? Well, I'm going to read it again. The man who, if born to wealth and power, exploits and ruins his less fortunate brethren is at heart the same as the greedy and violent demagogue who excites those who have not property to plunder those who have. Folks, we've seen this in the last multiple years. The gravest wrong upon his country is inflicted by that man, whatever his station, who seeks to make his countrymen divide primarily on the line that separates class from class and occupation from occupation and men from more wealth from men of less wealth. Sometimes history just keeps repeating itself. I will conclude with this little bit. In a republic, to be successful, we must learn to combine intensity of conviction with a broad tolerance of difference of conviction. Wide differences of opinion in matters of religious, political, and social belief must exist if conscience and intellect alike are not to be stunted, if there is to be room for healthy growth. Bitter internecine hatreds based on these differences of he would say religion, political, and social belief. Bitter internecine hatreds based on such differences are signs, not of an earnestness of belief, but of that fanaticism which, whether religious or anti-religious, democratic or anti-democratic, is itself but a manifestation of the gloomy bigotry which has been the chief factor in the downfall of so many, many nations. He's talking about being divided by extremes. That's what he's talking about. Rather than a respect for one another based out of character and virtue. And he finishes, well, he doesn't finish it, but I'm going to finish with this last paragraph. He says, of one man in a special, I guess he just sort of used sort of the lingo. Beyond anyone else, the citizens of a republic should beware, and that is, of the man who appeals to them to support him 
on the ground that he is hostile to other citizens of the Republic. Now pay attention to what's happening here because he's turning to this idea of you better be careful. And he's, he's kind of speaking to politicians and, and, and leaders. Obviously he says, be really careful about, about people who want you to support them because you agree with their hostility towards other citizens of your Republic and that he will secure for those who elect him in one shape or another profit at the expense of other citizens of the Republic. In other words, you better beware of people who, whose only stump speech is pitting one group against another. It makes no difference whether he appeals to class hatred or class interest, to religious or to anti-religious prejudice. The man who makes an appeal that we're talking about should always be presumed to make it for the sake of furthering his own interests. The very last thing that an intelligent and self-respecting member of a democratic community should do is to reward any public man because that public man says he will get that private citizen something to which this private citizen is not entitled or will gratify some emotion or animosity which this private citizen ought not to possess. He goes on and he gives this illustration. I won't labor the illustration for you. It has to do with cattle roping and branding. It's kind of funny. I hope you'll download the speech and read it. But he goes on to say at the very end of the story, and it's out of context, but you'll get it. He says, yes, my friend, if you will steal for me, then you will steal from me. If you will steal for me, you will steal from me. And thus ends the quotes from this great speech. I read the speech to you and read these excerpts to you because I hope it encourages you to greater character, to greater virtue. And if I might draw up the circle a little tighter, that it encourages you to great fight. It encourages you to great fights for others. It encourages you to great fights for greater causes, not for your own advancement. For your your fight for a greater cause will come your advancement. But will you fight for one another? Will you fight for things within your company and within your practices that are bigger than yourself? Will you fight for something bigger? Will you fight for bigger vision? Will you fight for greater causes? My dear friend is in a fight for her life. And maybe this podcast will help you to refocus on the important things of life. What really matters. What you really fight for what you really invest in, what you really lose sleep over, what you really would, to be highly dramatic, what you would die for. Because while we might be healthy, others might be literally fighting for their lives. So it begs the question, what are you giving your life away for? Or what fight are you giving your life away for? I want to thank you for staying tuned to this interestingly um, different episode of No Neutral Moments. I hope that something in the speech outside of the more more popular quote uh, grasped deep into who you are. I know that Roosevelt had his faults, so any historians out there who want to email me to tell me why I shouldn't have quoted him, you can just not even write your email because I probably won't read it because you're just trying to, you're just ignoring the bigger message. So the rest, I hope that there's a nugget you can take and you can apply as you reconsider uh, fighting like hell for what really matters. God bless. Have a great day. Remember, 
There's no such thing as a neutral moment. <laughs>